And this captain, like, says, nah, if, if you'd have tried, you wouldn't be here. And in proper, like, yeah. makes him feel bad about it. And I thought, you've got some balls being the captain of the one <laughs> ship that's left. You know, if, <laughs> he's obviously not done any suicide running to try and kill as many people as he can and die in the process. He's looked after his own ship. As she was doing that, I felt like watching a kid who has always loved getting an unmanageably massive bar of chocolate for their birthday and having had it 10 years in a row getting it starting to eat it and then starting to realize they don't really want chocolate anymore hello and welcome to shark liver oil you lucky bunch i'm matt i'm dave hello and we have got i'll tell you what we are treating you this week because you know Let's be honest, we've been behind a bit with uh, Game of Thrones for the last few weeks. Um, but this is where we come roaring back, because we're going to do The Queen's Justice, uh, which is episode three. And almost simultaneously, we're going to be releasing episode four as well, because that's been out for a few days now. Um, which was called The Spoils of War. So this one is this one is The Queen's Justice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt, there's nothing like a three-year-old callback. Nothing like a three-year-old callback. And uh, and yeah, keep an eye out because uh, shortly after that on the feed, uh, we'll be putting up the the next episode too. Uh, all ready for episode five, Eastwatch, which should be dropping very very soon as well. I was just going to say, I get the impression that Eastwatch is going to be one of those placeholder episodes where nothing really terribly important happens. Um, oh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah but but yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Well, n- nothing ever happens at Eastwatch. Nothing ever interesting, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> That's true. It's just a big frozen castle, and that is the way, Matt, I imagine it will remain. So this is going to be episode three, The Queen's Justice, that we're talking about. Um, we've got, because we're doing two podcasts today, we've each got a beer on the go as well, so... We'll see where this takes us. <laughs> it's going to be great, Matt. We are wittier when drunk. Yeah. Right. So uh, we'll, 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 we'll soon find out. Uh, we, we have... You I, know I, what? I, I, for the record, I intend, to be, I intend to be pleasantly relaxed. That's my aim. If, I start, um, if you start hearing me dribble on the mic, something's gone wrong. The intro section. just want to say something about the intro today. Um, no casterly rock in it. Do you feel this sort of... I don't know. Um, they've decided with this this intro thing used to always be going all over the map, showing you where we're going to be this week. And I get mm. the feeling by this stage they kind of they kind of over that part of it, and they just say, "Well, we'll just do a general one." Because you kind of you, you we always get Pike popping up, and I saw someone tweet this week saying, "Stop putting Pike. On. We're never going to go there. No one thinks we're going to go there." <laughs> <laughs> Stop teasing. It's not us interesting. Pike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's um, well. That's that's an interesting one, actually. That isn't it? Because they they seem to have they seem to have stopped doing that and instead dumped these massive maps right into the actual action of the thing. Yeah. Where like half the action in King's Landing now seems to take place with Cersei standing, looking malevolent and brooding over a map, a like massive a map, yeah, enormous carved on the floor map of Westeros. Yeah. Um. So I, maybe that's their plan. But I, I always used to think that was a very elegant solution to the fact that you had this story going on on this entire flipping landmass. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so we start the episode with John um, arriving on Dragonstone, and he's immediately told to give up both his, well, give up his weapons, and then they just take his boat as well. And he's like, oh, thanks, thanks a bunch, <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm delighted to see you as well. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the Dothraki guy who takes his sword off him 
gives him a proper stare down as well. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, 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 one thing I will say is that so far, for saying that there's this, you know, this is this like epoch defining experience of the Dothraki terrifying soldiers crossing the the narrow sea to get to Westeros. We have seen very, very little of them. And that is a shame because nobody can say they are not good value for money when they're on screen. And this just <laughs> little bit of swagger just made me feel like, oh lads, good to have you back, you <laughs> yeah. bastards. Yeah. Um so this is the first sort of meeting. It's quite interesting this because we've basically got two traditional good sides meeting here haven't we we've always mm. been on sort of Daenerys' side and on Jon's side um, yeah. but how are they going to sort of interact and I think from the very start the way sort of Missendi receives them and the way that they've got to give up the weapons and stuff straight away it's all about sort of laying down sort of some ground rules early that it's Daenerys that holds the power here and she's very you know her and her court are very keen to make that clear from the very start yeah, and it is an interesting one, isn't it? And this this we've kind of seen... We were talking about this a little bit last week, weren't we? Like, you're seeing these characters that you really like operating within the constraints of this system of, like, power and influence and so on that hmm. you really don't because it's killed everybody you ever cared about in this story. <laughs> so, um, so it's dead interesting seeing, like, how character... And, like, strength of character expresses itself against, like, I am the queen and if you diss me I have to kill you. And him Mm. being like, well, I am the king in the north and if you diss me I have to kill you. Mm. And, like, that whole thing of what kind of sacrifice is necessary and what isn't is very, very interesting. Yeah. The way that um, John and Tyrion sort of, I mean, these guys meet for the first time since, what, was it the King's Road or something like that where they were last seen together? It was certainly early season one. Um, And this was a nice moment, wasn't it? It is. It's beautiful, and there are there are actually over this episode and the next episode, there are so many moments where you're like, "Thank you," like you asked me to care about this relationship, you know, when when I still had hair, <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you bring them back together. It's just there's just there's a moment of like, "Oh, I remember being young." Don't you remember being young, Matt? Seven years ago, when you when you met these characters and you had a realistic expectation that they would be brought back together and have something to do with one another before you saw your dying day. It's happened, Matt. It's happened. Yeah, and you deserve a bit of payback from Game of Thrones because you lost most of that hair worrying about Game of Thrones. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So so yeah. So so. I think that this this whole thing about the the power um, and who holds the power here on Dragonstone is summed up with the sort of flyby of one of the dragons as well that sort of comes in low and John and uh, Davos throw themselves to the floor and I think yeah. it's just it's kind of just done just to mess with them a bit, isn't it? Oh, totally. Well, and everybody else styles it out as well. I absolutely <laughs> love the fact that everybody else in the group is going, "Oh, what's that? What is it? Basically, a biological <laughs> yeah. super weapon swooping down not seventeen inches from my right earlobe." Whatevs. Yeah. <laughs> Where quite naturally, John and the Onion Knight are like, fucking. <laughs> and it must be such a weird thing for them to like. They've heard about these dragons, right? And they're minded to believe that you know these things that have ne- that haven't been in existence for ages are now back. You know these things that are basically mythical are back. Hmm. But they do still. They are good audience surrogates in that moment, aren't they? That moment where you're yeah. like, yeah, I think I would probably hit the deck as well, and no amount of sang froid would prevent me from acting the way 
flipping Tyrion and Missende do here, where they're just like, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think the dragon that goes by is either the Viserion or Rhaegon. So, um, so they could have like had one of them just go, yeah, and he's he's not really the biggest either. You know? <laughs> Wait till you see the the big black one who's uh, knocking about further away. Um, but yeah, so we, we, they finally make it to the throne room, um, unburned, and uh, Daenerys receives them. And this is all like again very carefully staged. She's sitting on this massive throne, um, yeah. really far away. I think the way that it's actually shot is gives like further emphasizes this. She's sort of always yeah. in these big wides at the start, and Jon's yeah. quite narrowly shot as a. Um, to show the difference there, and, and he looks quite awkward, doesn't he, John? Like he's the very image of the sort of. The, I don't know if you know people like this who are like really stand-up dudes and absolutely badass at whatever it is that they do. But when, you, but like they go to a wedding or a christening or something, and they're just they're all pulling at the pulling at the collar on the on the yeah, shirt and just yeah. extremely uncomfortable. That's exactly where John is now. He's like, I can be the king in the north because all that anybody demands of me is to wear a big fur. And prepare to fight these zombies, and 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 like in this courtly, this whole Targaryen courtly upper class nonsense. He's like, "What do you want?" All right, I'm Jon Snow. All right, there's nothing heavy about it. Come on. Yeah, and that that's summed up really by the sort of the, the titles at the start as well. Like Missendi like ro- rockets through all those titles that uh, that Daenerys has got, and then that Davos just goes, "Here's Jon Snow." It's King of the North. <laughs> love it. Love it. And the thing is that you know what he's saying there, and you wonder if it gets picked up. What Sir Davos is saying there is he's King of the North. It's bigger than the rest of yours. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, he's not saying... He's saying that in that very we are from the North and we take no shit kind of a way. But he is also saying it in sort of a King of the North is enough. Yeah. He's as yeah. big a deal as you are. Yeah. And I, I do quite like that. Getting sass off somebody with the, the fundamental grounding humility of Sir Davos is a bit like, oh, well, pretty cool, sweet. <laughs> yeah, we don't have this exchange that... Um, it's quite clear from this that, you know, although these have both got... They've both got similar broad goals, the, these two, um, and obviously we both we like both of them, but there is a problem in that, you know, Daenerys believes that she should be ruling the North and Jon believes that he should be ruling the North. And um, mm. so they have this exchange over whether or not John should bend the knee. And um, I thought this uh, was both characters being right, sort of at the top of the game in this argument, because Daenerys makes some good points about, you know, for, yeah, for, for, for generations, your, uh, your, your ancestors said in perpetuity, in perpetuity that they would serve me. And that means you should be, you should be beholden to me too. And yeah. then... And then John's like, John comes back with the point that you know the last the last Targaryen burned his family, yeah. and, and I like it. She sort of asks for for forgiveness for that, and he's like, yeah, your it's not your fault what your ancestors did, but in the same way, I'm not bound by what my ancestors said. Ooh, it's good, isn't it? It's, <laughs> yeah. that, it's, it's like a it, judo that's a Ned Stark down. argument. Exactly. It's <laughs> such a great argument, isn't it? Just like, it's a judo throw that he manages to achieve without moving a muscle just by being like, my moral stance is as follows. Mm. Bounce off me all you like and, and just does it really well. But she, you know, she's making a decent argument from law. The problem is that after this long a war... And nobody believes the war is good for anything other than just putting a little putting a ribbon on top. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what matters is what they negotiate and what they say. And her argument is, you're a man of honor. You should do this. 
And that goes further with Jon Snow than it does with anybody else. But still, mm. he's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, your peeps weren't very much men of honour, were they? Yeah. You know, and, and a great, uh, wonderful, just, and it's another great example. Of, there's so many scenes in the, in, in the first few episodes of this series where I'm just like, oh, I've been waiting for this. Oh, how I have been <laughs> waiting for this episode. Like, yeah. I, I, quite frankly, I'm beginning to think that I would quite happily watch season one and probably season two and then just skip to season seven like, <laughs> just to get the story that I'm after <laughs> yeah um, see I suppose that the flip side though to, to John's very strong argument there is John's basically going before Daenerys saying you know these fucking white walkers are coming it's it's like something you've never seen before and I know you've seen dragons but believe me these guys aren't fucking <laughs> yeah. around so yeah. You know, we've got to stop these these guys and the army of the dead, and nothing else matters. And in response to that, Daenerys basically says, "You know, if nothing else matters, just bend the knee. It doesn't matter, and then yeah. I'll help." You know, yeah. And it, then that's and that's quite a tempting argument, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, and I can't really, I can't really argue against that. You hmm. know what I mean? Like, um. This is the, and and the thing is that John of all people, he's the guy who's in a position right now where he's got a right to say, you know what, I have sacrificed enough. Hmm. Like I I have been I've been hated by my surrogate mother. I have been you know a dragooned or not dragooned actually, but you know I've I've been I've I've sworn an oath that I would die before I leave my post, and then I died. And as a result of that, I became king in the north, and I'm serving, and I'm, you know, and I'm a good king, and I'm here to do this. Do not, do not underestimate the length of the road that's brought me to this point. And if there's one thing that can be said for Game of Thrones, is that it makes you appreciate the significance of the road that has brought people to a particular point. Hmm. Um, and, but equally, is this not a sacrifice he should make? I don't know. Well, I think, um, I think John really now. Um, more than anything, any time before, understands what Mance Raider was trying to sort of get across to him when John was in basically Daenerys' position a couple of seasons ago, where Mance Raider is saying, "For survival, I need my people south of the wall," and John's yeah. saying, "Well, kneel before effectively me and the crown, and yeah. then you can come past." And he's and he says that. That can't happen. That's the one yeah. thing I can't do. And now John's yeah. saying the same thing. And it, yeah. you know, from a political sense, stance, you know, John can't go back to the north and say, "Oh, by the way, we're all you know you may be king of the north about like a week and a half ago." Well, um, yeah. I'm not anymore. We're, <laughs> we're following this queen. <laughs> it's just not it, it, the, the the chances are they'll rebel. And in the same yeah. way that the only reason. Um, the free folk were following Mans Raider when would do what he says is because he is the number one. And he the only reason kneel. the Northmen are doing what John says is because he's the king in the north, not because he might become the, you know, warden of the north again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and, and I think that argument that Mans Raider made is is really pertinent here because it's 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 not at all pride. That's what's interesting about it, is these guys who win against people who are apparently all about, oh, you know, we must be the kings in the north, you know, we must be powerful and we must be overpowered and, we, you know, all of this. And then um, the argument he makes isn't, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest swinging dick in a room full of swinging dicks. The argument he makes is that all of these swinging dicks have for once stopped killing each other and, and put me in the position where I get to tell them what to do. 
but mm. that is very much a two-way relationship, mm. which is how good monarchy is always understood, isn't it? Yeah. Like, insofar as a monarch pays attention to the the needs and wants of the people that he or she rules, there's a, there's a kind of contract at hand. Admittedly, that individual wins pretty big out of that contract being at, being at hand, but there yeah. is a contract. And yeah. all the bad monarchs we've seen have been the sort of monarchs who mistake absolute power for absolute power, if you see what I mean, mm. um, who haven't been politicians, but who have been maniacs. And they all die. And yeah. there's a really interesting thing here between these two rulers, one who could go either way still, I believe, mm. and one who has definitely had the big swinging dick part of his personality beaten out of him and has yeah. ironically become a far bigger ruler because of it. Yeah, it's basically John and Mansreda are people who just they understand the people. And, and yes. the, um, yeah. the point that Mansreda was making, which, which, is, which is the parallel point that John makes now, is Mansreda is basically saying, you know, the people who follow me hate you Southerners. They hate you. They'll yeah. listen to me. They won't listen to you. Um, yeah. So you, so you can't say that you're in charge. In the same way, John says oh, it, almost word for word the same thing. You know, the people that follow me hate you, Southerners. We're just going a little bit further south. They'll listen to yeah. me. They won't listen to you. Yeah, um, yeah. And I so. wonder. I want to. I'd not noticed that parallel, but that's amazing. And you're right. I wonder to what extent he's consciously drawing on that. Do you think? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but they, they, so they get to a bit of an impasse here, and I like how when Davos tries to speak up for John. Um, he sort of reels off all the things that John's done, almost like a sort of like a, a late to the party list of titles for him, and um, yeah. and he gets as far as he sort of gave his life, and John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a minute, he's <laughs> like, and I quite like that. He's thinking, you know, we, we're trying to convince them that you know the dead are walking and we've got to kill them. Let's not push our luck by saying, and I'm one of them, but I'm, I'm but I'm good. <laughs> but I'm on your side, right? And that, yeah. yeah, that's a that is a really interesting moment, isn't it? And and. Because to me, I'm like, you should boast about that. That's item one on your CV, was brought back from the dead for a purpose. <laughs> but of course, you're right, messaging-wise, questionable. <laughs> questionable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, we forgot something, actually. Um, just before um, John gets to the throne room, in fact, I'm not sure if it's before he, yeah, before he gets to the throne room, there's a little exchange on the cliff between Melisandre and Varys. Because um, Melisandre's oh, yeah. like Melisandre knows which way the wind's blowing here. Because um, yeah. she didn't part on particularly good terms with John and uh, and Davos, so she's yeah. going to dash off to Volantis now. But she says she's coming back because she's going to die here, and she tells Varys that he's going to die here too. And I don't think she means sort of, you know, old in his bed, surrounded by a loving family either. <laughs> well, that'd be quite a trick for Varys, wouldn't it, for a start. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think I don't think she does either. Mind you, she did also believe that Stanith Baratheon was Azor High reborn and then whoever the next bloke was and whoever the next bloke was. So um she's a really fascinating study in somebody who is powerful and knowledgeable but extremely fallible. Hmm. Yeah. So who knows, you know, um what'll happen to Varys. Uh but I, I, I do like where they've left her character arc because she was a malevolent presence for a lot of this. She was getting people to do nasty, fucked up shit because of what she believed. Hmm. And where they've left her is extremely chastened, but not dead. Yeah. Um, and, and embracing of her own mortality, whereas previously we just saw her embracing everybody else's. Hmm. And now she's a bit more Beric Dondarrion, where she's like, I serve this red god. I don't know what he wants of me right now. I don't know what it's for, my service of him. And I've given up guessing because my attempts to guess have shaped whole wars, right? Mm. 
Um, so I do quite like the humility they brought her to. Long fucking overdue, by the way. I don't like her at all, but I do like where they brought her to in that they've shown a character art of apparently genuine penance and penitence. Yeah. Yeah, when she talks about like terrible mistakes that she's made, and yeah. it's nice that, and for all she's done, at least, at least she sees that as terrible now, and seems, yeah, yeah, you know, seems to regret it rather than sort of being a sort of brushing off. Oh, you know, great, good, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, yeah, very much. It's it is as if she has been made to feel the weight of the big moral arguments that she's been making. It's mm. like somebody who has spent their life from an armchair arguing that their country should go and invade other countries who has then been obliged to go and look at what a battlefield looks like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, her position may not actually have changed, but she understands that it's horrific now Mm. in a way that she didn't before when she was, in a sense, just playing the power politics thing. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, so, yeah, she's definitely... She's had to mature in her understanding, her wisdom, in a sense, hmm. uh, of what her beliefs are about and what they imply. Yeah. Um, the next next scene, uh, Theon is dragged up from the sea, is rescued by this, um, like, one surviving ship. And <laughs> Does that strike you as at all realistic, by the way? The idea that the Ironborn would look at somebody in Ironborn clothes after a losing battle floating in the sea on a piece of wood and go... <laughs> Come on, lads, you know, we're all in this together. Brotherhood of man, haul him up. That is not an ironborn thing to do, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they did it. They, they've survived this one surviving ship. Um, yeah. They they get him on the ship and uh, and, they, and they say to him, you know, what happened to your sister? And he's like, oh, she's been captured. I tried to save her. And this captain, like, looks at him like he's a piece of shit and says... Uh, if if you'd have tried, you wouldn't be here. I mean, proper like yeah. makes him feel bad about it. And I thought you've got some balls being the captain of the one <laughs> ship that's left. You know, if, <laughs> he's obviously not done any suicide running to try and kill as many people as he can and die in the process. He's looked after his own ship. I just thought, yeah, because yeah, obviously Theon doesn't defend himself because he just he's in a certain, certain mental state where he just can't know. But yeah. this guy, this this captain, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, I I agree with you. Uh, like, I I think that's bollocks. But I just I do I, I I sort of love that being ironborn means being completely oblivious of your own failings and just <laughs> chucking out barbed wire at everybody else. In a way, it's quite bitchy, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah, an interestingly it is, yeah. bitchy culture where it's like it doesn't really matter what you've done. It matters how cutting a put down you can bring out. Yeah, and and you know, for saying that it's supposed to be all about you know kind of you know, sea-soaked leather and flipping Viking malevolence. Um, just, yeah, it, it surprised me. Yeah. We then cut to King's Landing where Euron is parading through the street. This guy, oh. he's absolutely loving it. Isn't he, though? Isn't he? It's Oh, it's glorious. Like, what fantastic casting this bloke is. Yeah, this, the expression uh, on his face as he's going through is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's just like... Cause, I mean, because he's a piece of crap and he knows he's a piece of crap. Yeah. But, um, but here he is, like, parading through the streets of King's Landing going, you know what, guys? Being a bollock head, it really works for you sometimes. Here we go. Like, that's my best Ironborn accent impression, by the way. It is yeah. not good. And when he reaches the throne room, he sort of goes before Cersei and she says, you know, I'll, she basically says, I'll marry you once the war's over. And he yeah. sort of takes that as, oh, great. I mean, I'm not sure he should be trusting 
that kind no, of like cape if they promise. You, yeah, you sort of you want somebody to take him aside and go, sort of you're around here, aren't you, mate? Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's put it this way. Let's say if Cersei says something to you, it's start running, start running. <laughs> if she's looked at you, you've already lost. Get out of town. Yeah, he, he turns to Jamie for some bedroom advice, and uh, you can imagine how that goes down with with Jamie Lannister. Um, Jamie does a bit of a sort of careful now. The um, you know the mob were cheering for um, other people before, and then they've cheered when heads go on spikes. And Euron's got a great line where he's just like, "Ah, oh, maybe they just love heads on spikes." To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Cause- I think I think that works because because he's from the Iron Islands and he's the worst of the Iron Islanders. Yeah. You know, he's of I think it's just I love that line because yeah, of course his character is not going to be afraid of a mob, you know. That sort of like the mob mentality is sort of sort of child's play to an Iron Islander, isn't it? Because that's basically Absolutely. how they all live their lives. Yeah, yeah, and and um and it, yeah, it's it's his his mother tongue is the mob, the voice of the mob. Hmm. So he loves it. He can't get enough. Mm. Uh, now he has obviously brought back some um, a present as he promised um, it, it isn't as schlong Dave as uh, you confidently <laughs> predicted <laughs> no. come so, on Matt the only reason they didn't do that is because they had more people from Dawn to get rid of that's the only reason that they didn't just have him walk in with his you know with his chap out <laughs> yeah so, so so he throws down um, obviously um, Ilaria extramarital sex and um <laughs> It's really fortunate for you that that character's going away soon. Otherwise, you'd have this really long name to say every single time she appeared on screen. If you haven't heard the uh, episode before this that we did, um, we looked up Ilaria Sand to find out her name, and she's listed on Wikipedia. For some reason, her name is Ilaria Sand brackets extramarital sex um, when she's listed <laughs> next to Oberyn. I think it's like she's listed as Oberyn's partner and then it's that in brackets. I just thought yeah. it was just the weirdest thing to put down. So, so we're just going to call her that for, uh, I assume short, uh, t- remaining time in the series. But yeah, so hilarious and extramarital sex and, um, the, is it Tyene? The, uh, the other, the, the final remaining sand snake, mm. uh, brought as hostages. It looks like he's giving them to Cersei and he's keeping Yara for himself. Um, cause she's obviously yeah. in chains too. Uh, so then we move down to the dungeon and Cersei is going to get her revenge here, and uh, oh, what, Matt. what a punishment this is! Yeah, this this is um, it's one of those scenes. This that could have been like a bit of an eye roll in terms of oh yeah, just some sort of horrendous something horrendous is going to happen here just for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I thought it was done really well. The way it's staged, the way she sort of Cersei's wearing this weird sort of really bright pink lipstick at the start, and she goes through all this list of things that she basically says, I spend my nights working out how to kill my, you know, how to punish my enemies. Um, and she, she goes through all these things she thought about doing as punishment. And in the end, she goes for something a bit more poetic, which is she kills, she, she poisons Tyene in the same yeah. way that um, Ilaria poisoned Marcella, which is this sort of kissing, kissing her with the uh, poisons, the tears of Lys on her, uh, on her lips. Yeah. What did you think of this? Yeah. Well, it was horrible, obviously, and the, the staging of it was awful. You're right that it's one of the moments that's powerful because I've, of late with Game of Thrones, I have started going into some scenes where the moment the scene opens, you know something horrific is going to have happened by the end of it. 
And often it's happening for the sake of having something horrible happening. Often it's not a character moment or something that advances the plot in any particularly meaningful way. So I have ended, I have got into quite an eye rolly place with a lot of these things. And the thing that makes this not that is that it's so well acted. Mm. Um, really well acted. And the, the thing that grabbed me, Matt, I'll tell you the thing, the reason I think this performance is amazing is um, uh, Lena Headey as, um, as Cersei does. Um, it's the the first time for a long time and very possibly the last time ever that we see her in a, in an unedited emotional state. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and what it is is she says she 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 says you killed Marcella. Why did you do that? And the way she delivers that line is just knock out like give mm. the Emmy to her right now mm. because it's it is fantastic. The way she does that is just incredibly powerful because you see her like she has that same thing that is that is behind the tears of a kid who's fallen over and skinned their knee and doesn't understand why it hurts. You know mm. what I mean? It's this really really like brutal like early trauma thing um that she manages to pull out there where she's like she just doesn't understand why this horrendous thing was done Hmm. and for all that she could rationalize it there's still that yeah but why um and she brings it out and puts it all on stage and it is brilliant the the way the way the rest of it is staged was horrifying (laughs) <laughs> and it was it, 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 like I'm not saying I enjoyed the scene. Enjoy is entirely the wrong word, but I thought that performance in the middle of it was great. I actually thought the Sand Snakes were. I mean, fair enough. They're supposed to be, you know, kind of demonstrative and passionate, and the rest of it. I found it a little bit overdone, personally. Mm. You know, the yeah. But then again, this is the woman who managed to set a new length and depth record for screaming when a when a um, bit of stuff got. got oh, she sat she on. sold that. That was a hell of a scream. Yeah, absolutely. When, uh, she did. She sold it, and yeah. so. I don't really, I don't really know why I didn't feel like she sold this because it was a lot more mm. agitated and a lot less anguished, I suppose. But, um, mm. but yeah, but but Cersei in this scene, amazing performance. Yeah, and um, yeah, what a dreadful punishment. So the, uh, the 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 punishment for obviously for Tyene is she's going to be poisoned. She's poisoned, and uh, Ilaria has got to basically sit and watch her dying and watch her body decompose. She's just going to be chained to the wall for the next however long until she dies and yeah that's it's such a sort of the horror of it is just the length isn't it more than anything yeah. else just the sort yeah, of and endlessly stretching away how long she's going to have to sit there and and just watch her daughter die and then her daughter's body decompose decompose yeah that's the bit isn't it that's that's the really like inventive medieval horror of the situation mm. i like i like it because um it 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 feels very Cersei as well from her character. When you think her, that character, what what could she think of as the worst thing that she could inflict on someone? And when um, people she's loved have died have died in the past, like her mother and like Marcella herself, she's mm. she's spoken to Jamie about imagining them decomposing and that she can't get that out of her head. So. I think she's tr- she's inflicting that upon somebody else because it's the worst thing that's oh, ever happened yeah. to her. Do you know what that that is? Again, great shout. I love I love how on it you are with noticing these callbacks because I'm just like, oh, that's really minging. Oh God, oh, <laughs> horrible. And you're like, good heavens, the structural nature of that call is a, f- a phenomenal. 
Love it, Matt. Love it. <laughs> well, you know what? The, the only reason I said that was because I was going to talk about that line that Cersei delivered that you've just talked about, so I thought I'd best say something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other thing I wanted to say about that, that scene is um, sort of macabre and, sh- and like uh, chilling as the punishment is, it did feel a little bit sort of James Bond style. Like, and now I shall leave you to die slowly. Oh, yeah, actually, that's completely choosing. <laughs> amazing. Holy crap. But, How but, well sold that was <laughs> that I didn't even notice that it was an Austin Powers scene in, like, in, in all forms. That's incredible. Yeah. Which begs the question, is there any chance that she's going to be rescued? Because she's going to just be sitting there waiting to be rescued. And I assume that Cersei isn't going to at the end of this story Cersei isn't going to be on the Iron Throne you would think so I don't know is she is there a chance we're going to see Ilaria Sand extramarital sex again um if if we will it'll be because they need they need like a you know they need a bird in the hand to kind of be inside King's Landing and get struck loose and go on a killing spree right hmm. You know, if that if that happens, that'll be because they need somebody to get inside and do some do some shady shit. And mm. hilarious and extramarital sex will do it with <laughs> extreme prejudice, um, and will therefore be very entertaining. But I don't. In terms of where the character needs to go, no, this is it, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, it, it's a fairly simple character arc for her, I would say. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and 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 so that's the way it's that's the way it's yeah. That, that, that I think is the way it's going to go, but I, you mm. know, I mean, if she comes back, great. That means that means some mental shit's going to happen. Be a brief but bombastic scene, I'm sure. And I'm <laughs> always up for those. Yeah. Uh, the next scene, uh, Cersei basically jumps on Jamie's bones. She like runs into the, well, almost runs into the uh, sort of her private chambers and uh, gets down with Jamie, and then. <sighs> Like, she, she's not even bothered about keeping this a secret anymore now. Like, when someone comes to the door and they're both in bed, she just gets up and opens the door so they can... She's like, let them watch. Let them see our love. <laughs> <laughs> let them uh, laugh. Yeah. But the thing is, I think that, that makes it quite a, quite a good... It's just quite a good point of just how how entire and how complete her victory was in King's Landing last season, where anyone who's anyone who could have stood against her is dead now. So it, yeah. she really doesn't care who you know what she does. Yeah. She feels like she's invincible in King's Landing now. It's the enemies yeah, from she, outside that she's worried about. Absolutely. And she's justified in that position, I think, a little bit. But was there not something a bit melancholy in this for you? I feel like, like as she was doing that, I felt like watching a kid who has always loved getting an unmanageably massive bar of chocolate for their birthday and having had it 10 years in a row, getting it, starting to eat it, and then starting to realise they don't really want chocolate anymore. Mm. Like, there's a, there is a thing here where all she's wanted is to practice this extremely freaky, horrible love that she has for her own twin friggin' brother. Um, and and to be free to do it and to have crushed all the enemies that would prevent her from exercising the love she feels towards her loved ones. All her kids are dead, so all she's got is him. Mm. And um uh but there was a little bit of a yeah and like yeah. you've worked so hard at this, but there's just something a bit I'm not sure that she's gonna enjoy the fruit of it in that mm. way, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's a good point. Um and yeah, there's not really much more to say with that, is there? Uh, the the next the next scene is her sitting down with the Iron Bank. The Iron Bank have obviously lent the Lannisters loads of money and the Crown, 
And they're just checking that they're going to get it back because basically if they don't, they're going to back somebody else, i.e. Daenerys. And I think think Cersei here really does make a brilliant sell of why the bank should back her, which is basically, more than anything else, that she's the establishment and that um, banks do well when the establishment does well. And the, the, the problem with Daenerys, she says, is that she's a revolutionary and she's upending the order of things. And when you do that, things like banks don't do well out of revolutions, basically. Yeah. And I thought yeah, that was that's... a really clever way of selling um, selling herself to the bank. Yeah, well, it's her only card to play, isn't it? Mm. She's got the throne. She hasn't got the country, but she's got the throne. Yeah. Um, and and that, that gives her a lot of power um, mm. if she plays the card right. And she plays, it, plays an absolute blinder with it. Mm. Um, it is a bit sad, though, to see... I mean, you had to do it, but the Iron Bank previously have been the guys who turn up and have been the only guys in the room who don't care about the power games of Westeros. They're just like, fuck you, pay me. Hmm. And so in this, seeing them be a bit more kind of oleaginously calculating, a little bit more sort of, yes, yes, who will win? You will win. We will support you. Yes, always with the money. <laughs> you know, obviously, Mark Gatiss is superb at doing that character, but he yeah. was a little bit like, oh, I used to feel a bit like the people running the nursery, and now you just feel like you know, the guys selling ice creams outside. Yeah. Yeah, because the last, last we heard of them, they were sort of, they sent a bit of money Stannis' way, didn't they? Um, and yeah. that didn't exactly work out. So so now they're back on, the, back on the sort of Lannister wagon. Um, we then go back over to Dragonstone, where Tyrion and Jon are having a brood off. I like this. Uh, Ty- Tyrion sort of... <laughs> Tyrion sort of goes up to the... Drop the go- mic, Matt. Drop the mic. You're not doing anything better than that this podcast. <laughs> Glorious. Yeah, so Tyrion goes up to this cliff, and he sort of, it's really funny. He says to Jon, you know, I came up here to brood, but you brood better than I do, so you're making me feel like I can't even do that. <laughs> that is so good. Such a Tyrion line as well, isn't it? Yeah. And, and basically, uh, Tyrion said, at the end of this, Tyrion says, you know, I, I do believe... It's, John thinks that no one believes him here, and he thinks that's what the problem is. And Tyrion basically explains to him, it isn't the problem about whether or not we believe you, it's the fact that you're asking too much too soon. You can't come rolling in here and say, right, drop everything, bring all your army up to the wall and help me defend it. Yeah. So, you know, ask for something that we we can give you, basically. And... After a while of sort of this sinking into John, he's not the best political operator at times, is he, John? He's not the quickest. Um, he realises what he can ask for is to mine the dragonglass. And so Tyrion acts as this sort of go-between and goes to Danny, uh, to Daenerys and says, you know, you may as well let him do it. It's useless to us anyway. Um, so that then feeds into the third scene where, where Daenerys says to John, you know what, you can mine this dragonglass you know, as a sort of, yeah. as a gesture of goodwill. Kind of makes sense yeah. from all sides, this, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it's it's really interesting to see there, once they're not in that combative, you know, supplicant throne room competing monarchies moment, when they're two individuals having a conversation, they're both extremely good at getting what they need hmm. without giving up what they can't afford to give up. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, great scene. And in a sense, very like old fashionedly fulfilling in the way that TV shows used to give you about once or twice an episode. Hmm. Game of Thrones gives you once every seven series where you're like, yes, correct outcome. Thank you. 
<laughs> pleased with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah we, exactly. we, we then move up to Winterfell. Sansa is uh, Sansa's running this place like a boss at the moment. She's she's got the, she's got like a, a boss. <laughs> she's got a grain plan on the go. She's saying this is a really this is sort of a clever idea. This she's saying look get everybody to transport the grain over here now because when like when the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead invade, people aren't going to have time to sort of cart the wagon loads of grain over to us. They'll <laughs> yeah. just run here. So, yeah, um, and they're going to come anyway, yeah. Yeah, so let's get ahead of it. Um, she, <laughs> she also realises that... Um, she asks a question about armour. She says there should be some leather on, on these breastplates. And I don't know. I don't know about that, but I, I assume that's right because Bronze Jon Royce, who let's be honest, knows a thing or two about breastplates because he fucking wears one all the time. He immediately goes over and says, "Yeah, that's absolutely right." And, and puts <laughs> right. That's fantastic. You there, you there. These breastplates are insufficiently blingy. Come now. Where, where are the accoutrements? Hmm? Where's the trim? Sort it out, you horrible little understyled peasant. He almost says that almost word for word. He's like, he does go, you there. Why is there no yeah, leather on his I arm? I know, because he's the one actor in British, the British acting pantheon who can deliver the line, you there, and not be, like, terminally absurd. Pretty yeah. absurd. But also a little bit like, oh, I'm going to take you aback. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, also, Sansa asks the maester, when was there, you know, how long was the longest winter? And he says, oh, uh, I'll have to go and check. I'm not really sure. We're like, come on, oh, Mister. <laughs> you fail it. What is the bit? That's like somebody in sort of the Cold War being asked, you know, what is the biggest bomb in the world right now? Yeah. You're a weapons expert. Tell me about it. And he goes, well, I'll have to look it up. Um, yeah. No, no. Although, I, on the other hand, I admire experts who admit what they don't know. Like, there's been yeah. a problem in the past with Maesters who front up and give it all of this. Oh, your majesty, obviously, it would be the the flingity flang of Grand Maester Flugity Buff, uh, <laughs> was the one who did the, you know. Oh, the longest winter, majesty, was longer than years because it was before we had years. <laughs> at I least just, he doesn't yeah, do that, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, come on. I mean, it's like, for the, for however long, ever since John's arrived in Winterfell, all people have talked about it, say, winter's coming, and, you know, the, the winter's here, and the White Walkers are coming, and everything's about surviving the winter. And when she's like, when when Sansa says, oh, how how long's the like longest one we've had before? The mace is just like, oh yeah, that's a good that's a good mm. question, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I wonder how long. It was. <laughs> you know, I should I'll go and look that up, won't I? I'll go yeah. and look that on my own time, obviously, because there's more important things for me to be doing, apparently. But yeah. I will go and do that for fun. <laughs> Anyway, this Maester, what, what can you do? A good old Maester Lewin had known straight away, is that you? Um, <laughs> oh, the other thing here is uh, Sansa's taken, still taking advice from Peter Baelish from Littlefinger. Littlefinger says, it's, um, it's quite a good sort of abstract sort of idea saying, you know, think of all the possible outcomes that could happen, see everything happening at once. And um, then you'll never be surprised. And basically, plan ahead. He's a little concerned that she's too focused on the north, and not enough on the threat to the south as well. Um, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And oh, yeah. that that cuts immediately to um, someone who literally is seeing everything at once, which is Bran. Um, oh, here we go. So yeah. I imagine, I imagine 
This is going to be an interesting one, isn't it? Here's somebody who literally knows everything in this extremely convoluted story universe. I just understood why he took us on that unbelievable six-book process. It's because he needs somebody who can sit in a chair and go, here's what's happening, without the author having to finagle some way of somebody getting from one end of the known universe to the other every time somebody needs to be told about Dragonglass or Wildfire or whatever it is. Yeah. Just yeah, worked it out. How stupid am I? <laughs> so Bran turns up. It, it appears between seasons... What, what season are we on there? Seven. So between seasons six and seven, he's had a personality bypass. Because he's just like... He's just a nothing of a character now. Cause he, he is, isn't he? Yeah. It's weird. I mean, I mean, you can put it down to... Becoming omnipotent must be a bit of a smack to the chops to any idea you had of being, you know, the life of the party or happy-go-lucky. Yeah. You can see everything. Omniscient, sorry, not omnipotent. Being able to see everything at once. So I think you can make an argument from it for it from a character perspective. Yeah. But I, I, did, I saw one meme about this scene, um, which was basically, like, was an image. Did you see this? An image of, like, like it was like one of those, like, point-and-click video games. Yeah. Um, with, like, the, the dialogue options that come up. Yeah. And it's like, and it, what do you want to do now, Bran? <laughs> do you want to tell her what happened? What was it? There were, like, four options, and it was, like, really important things for the plot, or yeah. say something creepy and gnomic about the night that she got married and raped. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Yeah. And at that moment, I was like, "Oh yeah, that scene, that scene was not good." <laughs> I thought that actually exactly that about this about Bran now that he's like he's turned into a character who seems to be being pl- like in, in a telltale like select your response series where like the person playing him is just like doing it for a laugh and trying to do the most offensive thing he can every time. So it's like either don't say anything or say the most upsetting thing you can <laughs> just to see what the other characters say. But yeah, I, I do think that yeah, yeah, there is a there is a there is a genuine reason in the story isn't there in that that he sort of when the three-eyed raven died all that knowledge just suddenly got shoved into bran's head and yeah. it, it basically just obliterated his personality and he's just this sort of the, the closest um parallel i've seen i think it's really well really good is um him and someone like dr manhattan in the watchman series it oh, we, yes you know we've done before. oh that's interesting yeah 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 that's a really good point and dr manhattan obviously is this really well sketched character who and and you know actually to their credit then the writers aren't right now taking the opportunity to do what alan moore did back then but do it worse because they would because they're not alan moore <laughs> um and just have somebody who can just hang around forever and muse on on divinity or yeah. the possibility of divinity and omniscience and, and omnipotence. Yeah. Rather than that, he is um, almost tottering under the weight of the history of the world as it sits inside his head from all possible angles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's an inter- that could be interesting. Right now, it is frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Although there's a scene in the next episode that makes me quite happy, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So yeah, I think the Doctor Manhattan thing works better because you do you see him um, arrive at this point, don't you? You see the journey between him yeah. being closer to humanity and then just thinking, "Oh, I know so much that nothing really matters anymore." But um, I can understand why you know they haven't done it with Bran because do we really want to watch a lot of like five minutes of voiceover of Bran just looking around, looking a bit miserable as he decides that nothing's worth anything anymore? Um, yeah. But there is a bit, it does feel like a bit of a sudden sort of gear change because he's gone from, um, you know, as he was in the cave. I suppose the last time I saw him was in the cave. He's just had this change yeah. off screen. 
Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's that's true. And there's a there's a line in the next episode which I think is pertinent to that point, and it's really well yeah. made. But we'll we'll do that then. Yeah. Um, and he says to Sansa that, as you say, um, he he talks about how beautiful she looked on her wedding night. Um, it's a uh, part thing to say, like, yeah. like total decoupling from the emotions that are being felt and experienced in the things that he's seeing. So I wonder if that's part of the point of this is if he's if he's sort of he knows so much stuff that he's forgotten how to feel things, hmm. and that that's I, why he thinks that's remotely a, a, an appropriate thing to say. Yeah, I wonder if it's partly that, and partly it, it might be just the fact he's he's got access to everything now, but. He has to sort of pick what to see, if you like. So in the mm. same way that we've got access to everything online now, it doesn't mean we know everything. Yeah. We just we, we could just find out find it out if we so chose. And he the, the problem Bran's got oh. is can, can he ask the right questions um, rather than does he have the knowledge at his fingertips? And may, maybe this maybe the point is maybe because he's talking about the way the how beautiful she looks is because the most obvious thing the first thing he'd see if he was looking for her is whatever was near a weirwood tree and that would be she would be getting married over there so he just sees her looking looking uh, beautiful in the moonlight of course i'm forgetting this isn't omniscience at all this is tree nescience this is he can see see everything that's happened in human history as long as it happened near to a tree yeah i i don't know because he says things in as again in the next episode which he couldn't possibly know just from sort of tree vision so there's probably there must be more to it than that but i do wonder if there's that there's this element of he can know everything, but he has to he has to sort of see it himself. So if he was like if he wanted to ask a question about, you know, oh, what happened here, he could go and find it out. But he doesn't automatically know it. Um, mm. I don't know, maybe. No, but it, that's I, interesting. I hope it is I hope that remains an interesting question mm. rather than becoming a, a sort of tiresome a tiresome question, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, I suppose he does know. He does know that she, um, you know, what happened to her though, because he says you look beautiful on your wedding night, blah, blah blah blah, and then he says, "I'm sorry that you know what what happened to you had to happen to you in your home." So yeah, he does know, isn't he? He's just sort of yeah. just weirding her out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, that's weird. I mean, I think I think they're they're sowing seeds here, which is a bit of a ballsy thing to do when you've only got six episodes. Why well, haven't they got ten episodes left? in the entire run of the show. Um, but I will be interested to see how his character develops, for sure. Hmm. Um, we then move back to Dragonstone. Daenerys is talking about going burning the uh, the ships, um, Theon, uh, not Theon, uh, Euron ships. And uh, Tyrion says it's too dangerous, you know, because you'd have to ride one of the dragons and then if you get shot down or if you get shot yeah. while you're on his back, it's game over yeah. for all of us. Fair yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very excellent point. Uh, then we move on to um, the attack on Casterly Rock. We finally see, after seven seasons of hearing about it, what Casterly Rock actually looks like. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a weird decision on their part, isn't it? I suppose all the action has been taking place elsewhere, and mm. you don't want to spend money on a castle you don't need. But yeah. still, it's been so central, hasn't it? Everybody wants to capture it. It's a big deal, and we've never seen it. Yeah, well, we see two because we see High Gardens shortly after this, and we've never seen that one yeah. before either. So it's yeah. it's quite nice to see these other parts of the kingdom that we've heard so much about. But the the attack on Castle Rock's narrated, and um, it's 
I've heard two conflicting sort of views about how this is told. Some people think it's narrated as like Tyrion saying what could happen and then what does happen and you're seeing both. But I kind of saw it as Tyrion just saying what is happening um, mm. and and it just sort of, it takes you through it. So, he, you know, he says the attack's going to be hard um, on the walls and you see all the Lannisters ready to defend it and you see um, how difficult it is to scale them. And then at the yeah. same time, the Unsullied, uh, a smaller detachment, are going round through the drains, through the secret entrance that Tyrion has, has either found or built into the castle. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what helps the castle fall. But I thought both those things still need to happen. You still need to do the full frontal attack so that yeah. it's a distraction for the, the group that go in behind enemy lines and open the gates. Um, yeah. But either way, um, I thought it was a... It was quite an elegant way of shooting a battle scene. The thing is, they've got so many battles coming up, I think. They need to find different ways to tell effectively the same type of story. And I thought this was an interesting way of doing it. Yes, I agree with that. And I think that's a really important, like, it's a problem that they have that I think they're meeting fairly well. Um, Is that, yeah, they've got. They've, you know, they've been in a sense starved for battles for a long time, which means they've been able to give everything to these big battle moments, and now they've got so many because that's how the story gets resolved quite a lot. Mm. Um, so this I thought was really good um, because it it because it tells you about it from a tactical perspective. Um, the battle we have later on, the one at High Garden, pissed me off. <laughs> I don't mind telling you, like that one was a real fist of the first men moment, but we'll yeah. um, we'll get to it. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that you'd say that. that yeah, the um, the Castle Rock attack is told from a from a uh, tactical perspective, and I think the High Garden attack is told from a broader sort of strategic perspective, isn't it? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's two different ways of doing it. Uh, yeah, so the, so the Unsullied take Castle Rock. Uh, it's a bloody sort of desperate fight, but they they do it. Uh, the Lannisters get get their asses. This this becomes a recurring theme over this episode and the next one. The Lannisters get their asses handed to them here. Um, yeah. the, the sort of little sort of cherry on the cake is this one where is it, is it Grey Worm or, or Anon Sullied um, mm. spears this guy like throws a spear and he gets pinned on the on the uh, on the door through the heart. And you can always hear as it hits him just a sort of girl as a. Actually, it's more Mortal Kombat. Wins. <laughs> it's actually a Mortal Kombat finish him, isn't it? It's like finish him. It is absolutely, yeah, it totally is. But yeah. don't say that, Matt, because then in the next episode we will see a Dothraki rip out somebody's brain, <laughs> skull, rib cage, and spine as a finishing move. Yeah, um, but it's it's not all good news for the Unsullied. They've taken Castle Rock, but it's less well defended than they expected. And um, Grey Worm turns round to see Euron somehow. He's, <laughs> I don't know how he's done it, but after being in the throne room about like twenty minutes ago on screen, he's now burning the uh, Unsullied's fleet. Um, maybe, maybe he sent these ships on ahead of him. You don't know. Um, I mean, possibly. Although I think this is the second the second time in two episodes where we have the magic teleporting Viking, isn't it? <laughs> where like, who, what do we need him to do? What's happening? Is it on the sea? Someone needs to win a battle that we can't possibly show. Wicked sick. <laughs> Send urine, he'll be there in moments. You know, yeah. like, you gotta, yeah, I'm, so, I'm not having it. I'm not buying it at all. you got to love him, though, Dave. you got to love him. So, I, I disagree goes. with that statement, Matt, to be honest with you. I disagree with that statement. <laughs> so, yeah, so bad news A is that the ships are being torched. Uh, so the Unsullied are stuck at Castle Rock. 
and Bad News B was the rest of the Lannister army. They have gone to Highgarden, and we get uh, there. Yeah, they basically they, they march on the castle, and then sort of we cut to it being all over. I think, like you said, it's a uh, there's there's not a um, the, there isn't much of a battle here. You don't think you see any of a battle. You just see the aftermath, don't you? Yeah, and you, you yeah, weren't best it, pleased with that. I, I was not. No, it was. <laughs> I understand why budget. I understand why time, but this is the Lannisters fighting the the uh, the forces of Highgarden. Right, mm. this is the two biggest and most impressive military forces that we have had hyped to us again and again and again and again and again and throughout this series for seven and a half series what six and a half series at this point we have been told the military power of these two families is so profound that the whole history of the kingdom is going to pivot around it everybody Mm. takes it seriously everybody's scared of it everybody is out for this and then when we actually see them meet in battle it's over doesn't happen yeah, and I feel like that actually fundamentally, quite apart from I like battle scenes, it mm. fundamentally undermines what the what the, the their storytelling thing. Like they have hyped something and then failed to show it, and, yeah. I, and that is that's bad storytelling to me. Um, I don't want to, you know, obviously in other places it's spectacular storytelling this series, but this what they did here, bad storytelling, and there's no two ways about it. What did mm. you think? Well, I think I didn't mind it so much in that. I kind of felt that the the Tyrells, um, for all sort of how important they were, they, they were kind of a shadow of the the selves by this stage because it's just them now. Like all their allies in the Reach have gone over to the Lannisters. So you and I think that was they were trying to make that point when you see the army approach. You've got Randall Tarly, uh, Clive, mm. and uh, and his son, obviously, yeah. uh, ri- riding with the Lannisters. So it's sort of it. It's kind of it's it's almost like if the entire North turned on the Starks, and you just had the Stark household and their immediately mm. loyal men against everybody else. So the, most of the power of the Reach is already on the Lannister side by this stage. So it is just a sort of a slaughter rather than a two clashes of two great houses. Um, Do you but, know what, Matt? That is a solid argument. And I shouldn't sound so surprised because you make solid arguments all the time. But that you've actually turned me around a little bit on that. Like, no, okay, fair enough. I, I just, I, I wasn't really getting the significance of that. I still think they didn't set that up. If that's what they were trying to do, yeah. it wasn't properly set up. It was just like, oh, like there was the one scene convincing Clive Tarley to go and play for the other side, <laughs> yeah. and that was it. And it doesn't really communicate, you know, their success in turning an entire region of a nation yeah. to to fight against their the previous dominant force. Um, but yeah, okay, yeah. all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, I'll take it. Yeah, so I suppose you could have shot it, you shot from sort of Elena's behind Elena's shoulder as she looks out and she sees like three quarters of all the men outside the walls are, are holding sort of Tyrell banners or like old yeah. like high garden banners. I don't know, there may be a more elegant way of them doing that, yeah. Um, and it wouldn't have hurt to see in a couple of Tyrells like get stabbed as well, would it? <laughs> but yeah, anyway. just I mean, I mean, you've got to be careful, obviously, because you know there's a, there's a long and dishonourable tradition of people of you know battle scenes that were filmed but weren't really shown, like yeah. um, uh, 
I think I've called this example before, but it's glorious watching the, the old BBC 1980s shoestring adaptation of the Chronicles of Narnia, where there's supposed to be this massive epic battle, and what they actually do on TV, because they had no money, was it's like 12 people fighting in an extremely narrow corridor, and that's it. <laughs> and and so, like, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, you've nowhere to go at a certain point if you've got a battle scene that needs to happen and you've got no money to make it happen. There's no elegant way around that. But yeah. I, they could have done more, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then if we have Jamie walking through sort of the aftermath, you see the you see the Lannisters like counting up all these gold bars that they've got. So obviously they've got the money for the iron bank now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he goes up to he goes up to the top of the, the tower and Elena's there just sitting on her own. Um sort of it's all over for, for her, obviously. Um mm. she sort of she has this final exchange with Jamie, um, gives him a bit of sass. Uh, she, she, she goes through a, she, the, the final sort of um, thing that she says is she reveals that she's the one who killed Joffrey and she says dun, 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 dun. yeah I wanted you and you know the, the queen to know that um, yeah. and she killed him in a dreadful way and she waits to until she's um, already been poisoned yeah, um, until Jamie's already that. essentially shown her mercy in a sense you know yeah. what I mean he's like I've yeah. got to kill you but I'm not going to do it horribly and then she's like Jokes on you, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, yeah. quite literally. Um, and yeah, like yeah, it's um, it, it's. I thought it was a really good scene. I thought it was a really good way for Diana Rigg to go out because she's so good at being powerful and still. Yeah. Um, you know, for all that we were saying, you know, uh, uh, Elena Tyrell doesn't, you know, hasn't made a lot of good choices. I don't think. I thought mm. this last scene was great, and yeah. it's it's a good way of keeping this whole thing like. They keep doing this, where they they make us see how, for all their bastardry, Jamie and Cersei feel genuine love and genuine uh, grief hmm. for their kids and yeah. for their family emotions and how important those are to them, and they, you know, and, yeah, you know, they make true. make them make them feel it real. And um, I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and it, it did make it did make me think uh, just briefly as she was like I think it was when she was just sort of like standing at the top of the tower looking out as the Lannisters army approach, like you know, so much for not listening to clever men um, because she's <laughs> she's basically yeah been, that's, she, that's solid yeah she, she's been the boss for about what a couple of months and her house has been wiped out so. Yeah. Yeah, but she maybe she was in. To be honest, she's been done over by the choices of clever men because Daenerys has listened to Tyrion's plan, which has put her in this position, which has ended, which has ended her. Um, yeah. So I suppose, from an Elena Tyrell point of view, it's somebody listening to a clever man, which is finally done for her. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I just thought it was an interesting, an interesting point there. But that's it. Yes, yeah, so it ends with with it with a. Big death, I suppose. Elena, the, the Queen of Thorns. Um, yeah, it kind yeah, of felt I mean, like it didn't feel a shock. This death, it felt like her sort of story was kind of coming to an end anyway. Here, after Marjorie dies, and uh, obviously to a lesser extent, Loras and um, Mace Tyrell, she's kind of got other than revenge. She's not really got anything else to sort of to, to t- any any more story to tell, has she? Um, um, the Queen of Thorns. No, that's true. I mean, you know, you always look for second acts, but she's had two or three of those already, you know. Um, Mm. And, yeah, so, I mean, right time to bow out, I think. And a great way of doing it really gives juice to the rest of the story, I think. Mm. Yeah. And so ends uh, the 
so ends the episode. I think I think a, I think a strong episode this one. I, I, I yeah, I agree it. with that. Um, albeit missing a battle scene that it really needed to have, or at least a piece of dialogue explaining why it's not on screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it was dead foggy out there, my lord. You know, or whatever. <laughs> oh, like, just you, something. I tell you what, it was missing. It was missing uh, Lannister guardsman from um, from Riverrand. You know, when uh, the Blackfish gets killed, he just needed that guy. He just turned up and said, "The Blackfish is dead. He died fighting a lot of people." <laughs> <laughs> should have just got him to walk out of the, the castle. Done, actually, <laughs> that the the omission of the Blackfish remains a damn shame, and there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, but um, but no, I agree. Strong episode. Like uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I thought it did it did some interesting stuff. Set us up well. And again, it's full of moments where people that I care about come together and talk to one another. Mm. And that actually hasn't happened an enormous amount in Game of Thrones. It's all been <laughs> things fall apart. And you know, you know, I'm I'm clearly a very conventional story liker. You know, I like it when things come together. I like it. I mm. love it, Matt. When a, when a plan, plan comes, comes together. together. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this is a plan that's been, you know, 20 years in the making. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it while it's here. Excellent. Well, um, uh, th- that's the end of the episode. And so ends our um, episode for, for today. But don't worry. Um, we've got the next one coming up very shortly because we're just about to continue and uh, record that one too. So... Um, as ever, if you want to get your feedback in, it won't be in time for the next episode unless it, unless by some miracle, you sort of brand-style miracle, you know that we're just about to say this and you're about to send some feedback in in the next 10 minutes. I, I for one, am not standing anywhere near any trees, so I think we're all right. <laughs> yeah, um, but so yeah, unless you're Brandon Stark, I doubt we'll get any feedback, but um, it's shartliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. That's shartliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at shartliveroyal. We're also on Facebook. Just search for shartliveroyal podcast. Until next time, Dave, which is in about until, five minutes. <laughs> until a very short period of time has passed, Matt. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.